Episode 7 of God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any elements that have parallels with gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm education writer and Crown Prince of Anglesey, Charles Goff. And I'm photographer and modern man from Milk Tray, Phil Coleman. And during this corona coaster, we'll be trying to hold off the desire to explore strange new worlds, <laughs> seek out new life and civilizations by sticking on our red shirts to analyse the faith parallels in the Star Trek franchise, with a specific look at the second film, Wrath of Khan. We'll be looking at the series' impact on sci-fi, the use of the word myth, and why sacrifice and resurrection are like catnip to writers. Phil, what's your favourite Star Trek film? Uh, so my favourite Star Trek film is Star Trek Generations, with Malcolm McDowell in it as well. It's also got a reprise from William Shatner playing Captain Kirk, and you've got Patrick Stewart in there just being wonderful, as he always is. I remember my dad had it on video, and little little Phil, which isn't much different from regular Phil, <laughs> I must say, he picked it up, put it into the VCR, watches it, just being blown away by the production value and the sort of the tension and the scale of it. So much so that when I was a kid, I used to get a Frisbee and recreate the Starship Enterprise crashing into that planet because it was saucer-shaped. <laughs> and I used to do that all the time. It's, Loved it. That is adorable. I've got my two little ships here. I've got my, my USS Excelsior. Oh, just delicious. There. And, and I recently got the uh, the Defiant for my birthday. So Oh, nice. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, Mrs. Goff knows exactly what to get me. My gran, to help me go to sleep when I was a kid, used to sit yeah. next to me on the couch and she'd draw a little picture of the Star Trek Enterprise, the Starship Enterprise, lava. She used to explain every little bit, like, this is the hull, these are the thrusters, and she'd draw planets around them, and it was my favourite thing. That is really sweet. <laughs> I had a really sci-fi-laden childhood. <laughs> yeah, evidently. Oh, I love that. It was great. I think my favourite Star Trek film has to be First Contact. It came out in 1996, which is about when I was becoming a fan of Star Trek. And yeah. there's no shortage of reasons to love it. But I think the line where Picard says, no further, the line yeah. must be drawn here. The scene with Alfred Woodard, um, Captain Ahab has to go hunt his whale, was absolutely amazing and still sticks with me to this day. I, I yeah. watched it recently and that scene particularly, I was just watching it and then... You know the bit in Tropic Thunder where Tom Cruise's character is shouting down the phone and Matthew McConaughey's in the back just going, yeah, that's how I felt watching Patrick Stewart just kind of like, yeah, the line must be drawn here. <laughs> you know, like it's just, oh, it's great. So fair warning, Phil. I've been a Star Trek fan for about 24 years. I've got the Star Trek encyclopedia downstairs. I know, for example, that the captain of the Enterprise B was Captain John Harriman. I know that the Enterprise D has a crew complement of 1,000. 2012, and the Defiant has a crew complement of approximately 50. So I'm just saying, <laughs> it's a pretty high benchmark. I deliberately didn't look on IMDb. I haven't watched any special features. Well, so I appreciate the head start. Tiger no to, pressure, uh, yeah. <laughs> No pressure. <laughs> well, I guess we'll just get right into it. So this is Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan from 1982, American science fiction film directed by Nicholas Meyer and based on the television series Star Trek. When Khan escapes from 15-year exile to exact revenge on Kirk, the crew of the Enterprise must stop him from acquiring a powerful terraforming device named Genesis. The film is the beginning of a story arc that continues with the film Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, 1984, and concludes with the film Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home in 1986. Now, 
Now, for some trivia. I hope you don't know any of these, but you probably <laughs> will. <laughs> so, Leonard Nimoy had not intended to have a role in the sequel, but was enticed back on the promise that his character would be given a dramatic death scene. Yeah. Obviously. He has a very yeah. dramatic... It's very famous, in fact. Well, he was he was ready to be done with Spock, I think, by that point. Presumably, he just couldn't hear the sound of his objections over the like the money truck that they were backing up to yeah. his house. Um, yeah, I can just imagine that now. He's just like, wow, that's that's a lot. But yeah, all, it's a bit like... all Mark Bills? <laughs> it's a bit like Harrison Ford wanting to sort of... Wanting to get out of the franchise by wanting to be killed off, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Khan, Nooney and Singh, played by Ricardo Montalban. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. If there's another way of pronouncing it, then that's automatically wrong, because you do it with such flair. Montalban is a character who first appeared in the 1967 Star Trek episode, Space Seed. The computer simulation of Genesis transforming a dead planet into a habitable one and habitable planets into dead planets is the first complete computer-generated sequence ever used in a feature film. It is really? a direct brainchild of ex-Boeing engineer Lauren Carpenter, who, after Boeing, went to join George Lucas's Industrial Light and Magic. Lauren Carpenter also went on to found and name Pixar. No. Yeah. That's awesome. Those computer graphics for the Genesis device, they hold up. They're pretty decent. I was just watching it a minute ago, and I was like, hey, I tell you what, (laughs) that's all right, actually. (laughs) I'd be pretty pleased with that if I'd made it, so... It is a Star Trek running gag that there is a Federation embargo against Romulan ale, but this still doesn't prevent resourceful people like Dr. McCoy, using medicinal privileges as a loophole, from procuring some for Admiral Kirk as a birthday gift. And many Star Trek captains and flag officers have, over the years in Star Trek canon, viewed it as something as a status symbol, much like Cuban cigars in the United States. There's a brilliant bit in Star Trek VI where things have really not gone well, and... (laughs) Kirk sort of leans over and says, Computer, uh, make a note that no Romulan ale will be served at diplomatic functions. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Just after Admiral Kirk steps aboard, Scotty, played by James Doohan, says... He had a wee bout, but Dr. McCoy pulled me through. This is actually a reference to Dewan's heart attack, which took place just before filming began. You can sort of see a little, just that little pang of, like, honesty on James Dewan's face, and it's just like, oh, yeah, actually, I can believe that. <laughs> James Dewan was a, a Normandy veteran, but I think he was at D-Day. Wow. Uh, he's a Canadian actor. The the um, Scottish accent is, is completely put on. I think he does a pretty good job with it. There's one video online where he talks about... He got a fan mail from a woman who said that she was planning on killing herself. And he says to her, look, I'm at this convention at this day and time. Why don't you come along? And she does. And he talks to her for a bit. And then he says, I'm at this next convention. Why don't you come along to that? And this goes on for for a while. And and then he starts to get letters from her. And then it, it all goes quiet. He eventually gets a letter from her saying that she sort of got married and she had a family and kids and... And then he ends it by just saying, and, and that was that was the best thing I ever did in my life. I'll tell you what, we'll put a link to that video in YouTube in our description so you can check it out for yourself because that I am incredible. absolutely not doing it justice. Yeah, it's, That's it's incredible. Fantastic. What a wonderful, wholesome use of fame and of status. Yeah. What a, a credit to him as well. Yeah. So... The close-up of the SETI eels entering and exiting Chekhov's ear were done using a huge rubber replica of Walter Koenig's ear. One morning, the effects crew discovered the art department had left a true-to-scale Q-tip next to the giant ear. (laughs) How good is that? (laughs) Can you imagine (laughs) just walking in being like, Oh, dear. Wow. 
That's when you know that the art department has too much money. Either that or they were saving up all their lunch money. You know, (laughs) it's one of the two. (laughs) And a little just a side one for that as well. The seti eel slime was actually raspberry jam. Delicious. The phrase, to the last I grapple with thee, from hell's heart I stab at thee, for hate's sake. I spit my last breath at thee. It's taken from Captain Ahab's speech in the novel Moby Dick from 1851 by Herman Melville, which, which brings it nicely back to First mm-hmm. Contact. It's nice <clears throat> that these sort of, those two things are still meshed, you know, obviously that yeah. nautical sort of terms. And Anyway, moving on. Uh, so when interviewed about the film in the mid-80s, James Dewan stated that he felt that Ricardo Moltaban should have been nominated for an Academy Award for his performance. Subsequently, Dewan lamented that the Academy never really gives those type of awards or nominations for such movies. Last one. When Spock and Savick speak to each other in Vulcan, Leonard Nimoy and Kirstie Alley actually spoke in English, and then the sound people, including Mark Ockrand in his first association with Star Trek, created the Vulcan words to match the movements of Nimoy's and Alley's mouths, which they later overdubbed. Uh, Mark Ockrand also developed Klingon, and apparently filled the language of back-of-the-throat sounds made of a rich war vocabulary, but left out social pleasantries like hello. The closest translation in Klingon is nunkne, which means, what do you want? Which I quite like. <laughs> it's That's so awesome. very Klingon. Yeah. Not hello, just right, what? <laughs> I only know a little bit of Klingon, but the key one is kapla, where you sort of bang your chest, shout kapla, which means success. In this era where we can no longer shake hands anymore, I think kapla seems like a good way to go. I'd say so. And also, I'm going to start doing that every time we finish recording <laughs> a podcast. <laughs> Success! Awesome, <laughs> awesome. Thank you for those, Phil. You succeeded in your mission of teaching me things about Star Trek that I didn't know. Genuinely <clears throat> is such a proud moment for me. <laughs> <laughs> so as I said, I've been a fan of Star Trek since I was 13. So I had to work hard to find a guest who loves Star Trek more than me. Thankfully, I succeeded in doing that with Stefan Austin, a fellow Star Trek enthusiast. Let's hear him introduce himself. Hi, I'm Stefan Austin. I'm a carpet fitter and I'm based in Kidderminster and I've been a Star Trek fan from probably since the age of about eight. Thank you so much for joining us today, Steph. So let's dive straight into it. How did Star Trek as a whole come about? The series came about when a producer named Gene Roddenberry was basically looking for his next gig, really. He was a producer based in Hollywood and his show, The Lieutenant, got cancelled and he decided, I'm going to go try something with science fiction. And he basically managed to sell other pilots to uh, NBC and that pilot was called The Cage starring Jeffrey Hunter Spock was in it and it had a number, a female number one called my, um, played by Majel Barrett it was the most expensive pilot made up to that point oh um, really? yeah but it, I think it was something that in 1965 it cost something like $695,000 which wow. is a lot of money now so I'm guessing mm. inflation and so that got made and basically the network didn't like it They I think they liked it but basically they said it's too cerebral they didn't like Spock either. They thought he was too satanic in appearance and would upset viewers. You know, the captain's a little bit of a different character in that. Um, he's a bit more sort of it troubled and inward looking. But they must have liked it enough because they basically did something that had never been really done before, which was to order a second pilot. But, Maybe um, it's because they spent so much money on the first pilot yeah. they thought we need to recoup our expenses somewhere or another. Yeah, yeah, we, we you know we've got something here maybe, but uh, let's try and not like just write off that six hundred and forty-five thousand dollars. But um, they slightly redesigned Spock, and they cast obviously they started to cast all the the, the crew as the 
as the cast we know them. And off the strength of Where No Man Has Gone Before, which is the title of the second pilot, they basically liked it enough to sort of commission it for a full season. So yeah, that's where it all began. It carried on. It it never did that well ratings wise. It was okay during the first season, but it did slowly decline. Mm. And I think they were thinking about sort of ending it. But that but there was a like a save Star Trek campaign, and they campaigned to NBC, and they were that impressed by the sort of response from the fans over this show that they thought we'll commission it for another second season. And I think that's probably where it hits its peak. Actually, uh, at some point through the second season. And Gene's had enough, he's stressed, he's burnt out, and he sort of leaves the show. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, he goes. And also, Gene Kuhn, who had been responsible for a lot of what you know, we probably classic episodes. Mm. He goes on to another project, so does DC Fontana. And then the NBC decides to save the show after the mm-hmm. fan campaign, but they cut the budget. They move it to 10 o'clock on a Friday night, but there's people left to sort of carry it with less money. I think the third season does struggle a little bit. You know, there's still some good episodes, but overall it's sort of a little bit hit and miss. And by you know end of that third season, they decide to cancel it. The TV series gets cancelled in 1969. Yeah. Nothing happens for a long time, and yeah. then Star Wars comes out, and Paramount starts thinking, don't we have a sci-fi franchise hanging around somewhere that we could use? Yeah. And that's when the films start coming out, don't they? Looking at like the 70s, there's a bit of a gesture. There's a lot of sort of, will uh, nearly starting something, then it doesn't happen. Mm. Conversations with Gene about doing something with it. And then I think by about the mid-70s, they're talking to Gene Roddenberry about doing it as a series. And suddenly they thought, hmm, we've got this property. No, we don't want to do a series anymore. We want a film. We want that sort of level of success. Basically, they go into development of the motion picture. It just had a troubled production and its costs overran a lot. So it wasn't a failure in terms of... They didn't lose money on it. You know, it wasn't the ideal um, experience for the studio, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Why is Wrath of Khan so important to the franchise? Because if it hadn't have been a success for a start, there would be no, have been no more Star Trek. You know, given the numbers that they did on the first one, they were going to do a sequel, but if that sequel had failed, it had ended there. It sort of redesigns the look of the films, and and most importantly, they did it on a very tight budget. It's like they brought in a new producer, Harv Bennett, and said to him, can you make a Star Trek film for less than $44 million? And he he said, for that money, I can make you three. <laughs> At this point, they kicked Gene Roddenberry out of production of it. So they basically made him an executive consultant, which kind of kicked him upstairs a little bit. And so we come to making The Wrath of Khan. For $12 million, that film cost. They reused a lot of the sets from the motion picture. It's very much sort of like got that feel of the original series. So I didn't realise this till recently. It was made by the TV division of Paramount. So the TV producers are more used to working fast and cheap in this area. Yeah. So. And, you know, exactly. I mean, a lot of the sets, you know, the Reliance, the Enterprise, yeah. same set, redressed. We rewatched it recently, and it the first time I've ever seen in the Botany Bay that Khan yeah. is reading uh, Moby Dick. Yeah. And you realise yeah. that Khan is Captain Ahab and Kirk is his white whale. Yeah, and he's sort of singularly focused on mm. Kirk. And yeah. It doesn't matter. He's meant to talk to him, and it's no. Let's talk about Spock's death. There was quite a, a strong fan reaction to that, wasn't there? Basically, I think they were trying to keep it secret. Somebody leaked it. I think Gene Roddenberry might have leaked it. 
lot of the fans weren't happy about it. There was a bit of a camp like letter campaign. A few took out trade adverts, mm. sort of asking them not to kill him off. But I also I think one of the things that swayed them, I don't know if it's which is the main thing, but because originally the film just ended with Spock's death, uh, I think it was just his funeral mm-hmm. scene at the end. And then the test screenings were very sort of disappointing with that ending. People um, like it was like they were filing out of a funeral, very sort of deflated. Like it was a good film, but it just mm. ended on this downer. And so they said we've all got to do something. So all they did was they did that extra shot of the photon torpedo tube landing on the planet. And Len Nimoy does the voiceover at the end of yeah. Space, the Final Frontier. Now this was all, I think this was already in about him going up to McCoy and, and saying, remember, mm. they just threw that in. I think because he was having a good time on the film and thinking, well, you know, it's just maybe leave the door open for something. Yeah, um, I feel like Leonard Nimoy was trying to get away from Spock for an awfully long time. And yeah. uh, it's, he has a quite a conflicted relationship with him for, for, the, for the longest. So what is it you think that is the key to Star Trek's enduring appeal? I think it's always been this forward-thinking show. I think it provides a great escape for people from what's going on in the world right now. You know, you're looking towards a future where we've sort of overcome a lot of our difficulties and we're sort of going forward. And so, you know, if you're having a bad time at work or, you know, you're having a bad, you want to get home and put your feet up and forget about it, it was a great way to do that. Thank you, Steph. Thank you very much for being with us today. Okay, that's great. Thank you. That man has an encyclopedic knowledge of Star Trek. Like, I didn't know that anybody could know that much without actually having worked on it. So, you know, like, that's it's quite interesting. I, I, I thought that his, um, his sort of commentary on Gene Roddenberry just basically being thrown out the door. At... It's a recurring theme with Gene Roddenberry where he comes up with this wonderful concept and then he seems to take it just a little too far and other people need to step in. One of the key things with Roddenberry was he wanted there to be no conflict between human beings. Problem is, if you take out all the conflict, you have no drama. So this became a particular issue with the writers on Next Generation. Gene Roddenberry is a bit like George Lucas in the sense that he created something wonderful, but sometimes he can take things too far. I can't imagine any kind of series or any kind of film series, television series, that's got no human conflict because where does all the tension come from like you know it, yeah. if it's two aliens it's, it is, arguing it's not the same it's it's thoroughly enjoyable to have the, the sort of alien of the week but we it's nice to have some kind of conflict in between our, our human characters and our, and our core cast you know Steph is a, a massive Star Trek geek like me when Natalie first introduced him she said I'm dating this fella he's really <laughs> nice and he's got a Star Trek room okay sold so he's passed yeah, the goth yeah, test yeah, yeah, I was okay. just going to say like the fact that Leonard Nimoy is just doing his absolute hardest to just run away from Spock at every single turn, <laughs> considering that he's well, like mm. so influential and such a key part of Star mm. Trek, of the lore and of the fans. Well, you see, the thing the thing was, it had been leaked that Spock was going to die, and yes. there was this massive fan backlash about it. They were up in arms. What they did was they brought in that first scene in the film with the Kobayashi Maru, where yeah. everybody's dying left, right, and center, including Spock. So if you're a fan going into that, you'd see that happen and think oh okay that must have been the death they were referring to yeah that, that was a red so, yeah a little bit so i thought that was wonderful anyway now it is time for finding the faith in the film da, 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 da. i think that was my best I one like yeah flourish at the end <laughs> 
Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Dealing with the obvious stuff first. The device used to terraform planets instantaneously is called Genesis. Now, this is similar to the way we talked about Spielberg and George Lucas basically rifling through the Bible and picking out words that they like. But this takes it a step further by linking it thematically with what the device does. Once fired into a dead planet, the Genesis device is able to reinvigorate the planet with into a lush paradise, bringing life from nothing. And as McCoy puts it, according to myth, the Earth was created in six days. Now watch out, here comes Genesis. We'll yeah. do it for you in six minutes. Now, was there anything about that speech that he did that stuck out for you there? It's the fact that he says, according to myth specifically mm. that's the bit that got me it's said a yeah. lot about the world that star trek is setting that it's a very a scientific led world where religion's yeah. not really I, a thing yeah i wanted to pick up on this word myth because it doesn't quite sit right with me so yeah. the the dictionary definition i found was a traditional story especially one concerning the early history of a people or explaining a natural or social phenomenon and typically involving supernatural beings or events beyond that though there's the connotation that a myth is inherently false so within the same line, it becomes quite a loaded a loaded term it's like i have no problem with people sort of debating things back and forth but the way something is assumed to be untrue right from the get-go is going to set a lot of people's teeth on edge i personally think the term myth works better when applied to stories where there's an absolute consensus that it's completely untrue i don't believe there's anyone out there sincerely saying they believe in the greek gods for example yeah Uh, and I, i think I think most people would probably be offended when you refer to their beliefs as a myth. You can accept that Beowulf, for example, isn't true. It's just a myth. Just to clarify, I do not have a problem with people doubting the historical accuracy of the story of the Garden of Eden. <laughs> I became I became a Christian in, in a fairly fundamentalist background where it was taken as read that everything in the Bible was literally true. However, over the years, I've come to accept that it's unlikely that that's the case. The best way someone described it to me was that Moses, who is traditionally believed to have written the first five books of the Bible, including Genesis, is stood on the Mount Sinai. This is the point where God gives him the, the Ten Commandments and he gets this inspiration to write the first five books of the Bible. And again, this is where we dip into Giles' headcanon. There is no proof for this whatsoever, but this is how I think it went down. I imagine Moses asks God, how do we get here? And God, so desperate to show off because he's really passionate about his project, he says, well, it all started off with this big bang, which is where subatomic particles combusted, shooting out heat and matter in all different directions. This resulted in you guys who came from like protein-based life forms made of deoxyribose <laughs> nucleic acid or DNA helix which is then that's the moment where God sees Moses' eyes glaze <laughs> over and he goes okay wait I'll start again in the beginning <laughs> I love mm. that so much just God's yeah. just there like see there's, there's a lot of heat and, and there's lots of atoms and, and your eyes have glazed over oh yeah okay this will surprise nobody when I imagine that God is almost like a film nerd who is so desperate to show you about the Kuleshov effect he's used here and how, how that has many different meanings everyone goes "Uh uh-huh great whilst i can accept the story might not be literally true i struggle to believe it doesn't illustrate a broader truth about mankind and temptation which would have worked really well when explaining it to somebody of the ancient world like moses yeah there has to be some kind of update really depending on how Mm -hmm. far along you are in civilization like they didn't have the same kind of understanding of science they didn't have the same understanding of the universe that we do now so it makes sense that a lot of it comes in sort of like that sort of phase a storytelling kind of way. This idea of trying to tell something to someone 
whose culture and understanding of the world is not advanced enough to, to get it. I mean, if you watch enough sci-fi, that's something we can understand. It's you know? prevalent. So Gene Roddenberry, who created the universe of Star Trek, uh, was a, a phenomenal man in many ways. Uh, but one of the things that was key about it was the idea that humanity had evolved past any form of conflict, that all conflicts we had would be external with other species in the galaxy. Now, Roddenberry's secular humanism leaked into his storytelling, and as far as he was concerned, a large source of conflict was religion. So, Ronald D. Moore, who was arguably one of the greatest Star Trek writers, said in an online chat that Gene felt very strongly that all of our contemporary Earth religions would be gone by the 23rd century. Mm. And while few of us around here actually share that opinion, we feel that we should leave this part of the Trek universe alone. And Brandon Braga, who was one of the series producers, said, In Gene Roddenberry's imagining of the future, religion is completely gone. Not a single human being on Earth believes in any of the nonsense that's plagued our civilization for thousands of years. This was an important part of Roddenberry's mythology. He he himself was a secular humanist and he made it well known to the writers of Star Trek and Star Trek The Next Generation that religion and superstition and mystical thinking were not to be part of his universe. On Roddenberry's future Earth, everyone is an atheist and that the world is better for it. Now, that's fine. Essentially, all that's saying is, gosh, wouldn't the world be a better place if everyone just agreed with me? Yeah, it's a narrow way yeah. of thinking and it's 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 quite uh, self-absorbed as like yeah. a, a creative person to sort of push that viewpoint onto people through something that is going to be viewed by so many people as well. Joss Whedon is is an atheist and he was talking about writing for Captain America and he said just because I'm an atheist doesn't mean that my characters are and I think that's a a really good way of looking at it. Yeah. So my, my personal view on this and I'm happy to be corrected if anyone can come up with an alternative view is that Star Trek has been so influential on science fiction that this secular humanism seems to have permeated throughout sci-fi. Have you ever heard of a hegemony? I've heard of it. I'm not entirely sure on the definition. A hegemony is an ideology that is so dominant, you almost don't recognise it as an ideology. If I gave you an example, if I said, in the Western world we all agree that democracy is the best way to run a government. Would you agree? Democracy, love it. Let's just have lots yeah. of that, spread it on toast, so, you know what I mean? Exactly. This is what I mean by a hegemony, and it's where something isn't even debated anymore. And this is what I feel is how a lot of sci-fi is represented, where there's really no room for faith or religion anymore. And personally, I think this perpetuates the idea that science and faith are in opposition to each other, and we can mm. see how much pain that has caused over the years. And I personally don't think that's the case at all. I tend to think of science and faith as two ways of trying to explain the way the world is, but coming from two different angles. Religion is like this prescriptivist view saying, well, the world came into being this way because of this and all that and all the rest of it. And science is saying, well, the world's like this and we got this stuff over here and we're definitely sure mm. we got that. They're almost kind of grasping towards each other, but there's this gap in the middle. The way I sort never of... never quite gets closed. The way I sort of think about it is that religion in many of its forms is sort of like the why whereas the science mm. is more of like the how exactly the science is there going the big bang not entirely sure what mm-hmm. caused it might have been god however this is how the big bang actually happened 
<laughs> you know, what yeah. caused it? So, no idea. Let, but this is what actually happened, and I can prove it. <laughs> you know, so you wouldn't want your science to be influenced by faith, and you wouldn't want your faith to be influenced by science because they hold each other back in that respect. But just because that's the case doesn't mean that they don't both have an important part to play. I feel these two can work together. I don't feel they need to be mutually exclusive. Yeah. And I think we've seen a lot of really good sci-fi um, in recent years, Battlestar Galactica being the first one that springs to mind, mm. that suggests that these two things can work together. So if all this is the case, if Star Trek is definitely a secular text that strongly rejects faith in Christianity, then why does Wrath of Khan, possibly one of its most important stories, borrow so heavily from the gospel? Well, Interesting. Wrath of Khan <laughs> is, is a story that starts off as Moby Dick and ends as the Passion of the Christ. At the end of the film, Spock sacrifices his own life in order to save the, the rest of his crew. And also between this film and its direct sequel, there's kind of a battle of ideologies. So for example, as Spock says shortly before he dies, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one now that yeah. is your standard utilitarian argument and it's well understood your basic philosophy student would figure that out and, and understand it however in the following film kirk risks his own life and that of his crew to rescue spock and when kirk and spock are finally reunited spock asks why do you do this for me and kirk replies because the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many and that's fascinating because there that is the absolute opposite of a utilitarian argument but it is also absolutely key to one of the gospel messages. And if I give you just hmm. a little bit of a, uh, a section from Luke 15, 1 to 7. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And it just felt like there was this really strong connection between these two things. On an objective level, Kirk should just leave everything alone and keep everybody who's got with him safe but he risks everything for this one person that he loves and there's this belief it's not quite Giles headcanon it's this idea that your salvation from God isn't is personal that even if there had been no one else he still would have died for you yeah and that's something that I think resonates with me particularly and it feels like something that's reflected in this story here does that make sense it does and as, mm -hmm. as like a following up from that as well, what it sort of makes me think of is you mm. look at Spock. Spock is, is logic. He is science. He is answers. He is everything that you would think in. He's sort of like a scientific text if he was walking around in human form, well, Vulcan form. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. Whereas Kirk always goes by his gut. He always trusts himself and his, and his faith in himself. And for me, it's personified in those two characters. Spock mm -hmm. is the science. Kirk is the faith. Kirk couldn't live without the logic of Spock and that friendship that he had. They almost become allegorical figures in that, in that sense, yeah. you know, that uh, Spock represents science. And Kirk, depending on how you look at it, can represent humanity. He can represent faith he can represent a number of things i found it interesting what steph said that gene roddenberry kind of got kicked off the shoot for wrath of khan because there's that one line spock utters shortly before he dies i have 
and always shall be your friend. And to me, that has massive echoes. I know it gets you, doesn't it? I watched that a minute ago and I was just there like, oh, Spock. Oh, you know, just like I was really, I was getting to, I was getting choked up. For me, it has massive echoes of John 15, 13, which is this line where Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. And I find that word friends fantastic. He doesn't say loved ones. He doesn't say family. He says friends. And that's always resonated with me because my friends have always been the best of me. They've always brought out the best of me. And the connections, for me at least, are unavoidable. I'm not as familiar with the gospel mm. as you are, obviously, but but it makes sense. I think as well, like with friends, you've like if you're going to talk about friendship and the connection that you have with friends, like it's not a connection that you immediately will have with somebody mm. it's it's sort of environmental it's almost learned as a relationship mm. would happen like like for example you you are born and you will always have your mom and dad there and you'll always have that connection that is almost like an inherent connection siblings mm. grandparents that kind of thing but like but friends you meet people these people throughout your life who have different families and different people and Sometimes those forged connections can mean so much more. Something entered into willingly is always going to be a stronger bond than uh, a familiar one, which can be quite arbitrary. And that links in really well with this idea that we choose Jesus and we choose to be his followers. And that's and it's stronger because we've got the choice for it. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, no, that does make a lot of sense. And I don't know why. It made me think about when I was quitting smoking. When I started smoking years ago, I don't smoke anymore, as you know. When I started And if smoking, his mum's listening, he never, ever did. Don't worry, my mum knows. <laughs> <laughs> she knows. She knows okay, all, Giles. So when I was quitting smoking, I got into it because I wanted to try it. And then mm -hmm. I kept trying it. And then I found out I really liked it. And I didn't want to stop. But as soon as I wanted to stop, it became so easy. Mm. The withdrawal symptoms, I could, I could weather them because I knew what I wanted my goal to be. I'd made a decision. I'd made a commitment to myself to stop. And I think that's that sort of mindset's got a similar sort of thing. Like you, you're always more willing yeah. to do something if you make the decision to do it. And that bonds strong. I think some days I'm a follower of Jesus, not because I feel it in my heart or I've got this amazing conviction, but some days you just have to flip in slog on and say, I've made this decision. I'm flipping sticking with it. That's the best that's, way to put well, it. Well, I mean, I still haven't smoked since I made that decision. So, and it's one of the best things I ever made. The last thing I wanted to talk about was slightly extra textual to Wrath of Khan. There was a band called DC Talk, which won't mean anything to most people, but it will to Christians who were believers in their teens in the late 90s. They released an album called Jesus Freak and a book called The Voice of Martyrs. And what their point in the book was, was to draw attention to people who'd given up their life for, for Jesus in various different situations. But they had this phenomenal uh, introduction and it talked about a lot of things, and I'll just read out uh, a section from it. Heroes, brave men and women who lay down their lives for someone else. The dying lieutenant turns to the young soldier for whom he has sacrificed his life. With his last breath, he says, earn this. The science officer exposed himself to excessive radiation to fix the ship, killing himself, but saving the lives of everyone else on board. Our culture understands heroism, but we don't understand martyrs. Now, without names, that's obviously referring to Saving Private Ryan and Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and, and Spock yeah. is the, the science officer in question. That might not sound particularly revolutionary, but the fact that I read it in a explicitly Christian 
text really was because there can be a temptation in born again Christian subculture to put a ring around all Christian output and say God can be found here and only here and Mm. personally I think that's an absolute fallacy because God is everywhere you look and for me I spent my life finding him in film and TV and books and absolutely everywhere I really like that a lot it's it's nice as well that you can have sort of pop culture film and any kind of art I suppose that it might not explicitly be talking about God or about any kind of religion, but the parallels are just undeniable. You, you yeah. see it everywhere. Whether it's God or not, yeah. there is a distinct way you should be doing things, in my opinion. I completely agree. That's the end of our Finding the Faith in the Film section. Before we leave today, I just wanted to give a quick shout out. I found two fellas who responded to one of our, our Facebook posts. Hey! Uh, Chris Gavin and Chris Bell. Chris Gavin said that he actually uses our podcast as part of his RE lesson for his daughters. No way! And that they listen first and then they watch the movies, which I thought was absolutely oh, fantastic. So That is so great. Thank, thank you so much for that, guys. We really appreciate that. Thank you. Our next film is going to be Captain Marvel. Guys, have a great week. Phil, have you had a good time? Always. I always enjoy stimulating my brain. I always have a good time talking to you guys. See you next week. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye. God in Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh, and our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Fact-checking by Christina Stanard-Good. Waffle editing by Natalie Austin. Tech support from Claire Goff. God in Film is a Dask production. Please rate and review, unless it's a one-star, in which case just tell Phil by Darmok and Gelada Tanagra, his arms wide open.